I think it's fascinating. I think we need to keep monitoring it. From King 5 News, this is The Sound. I'm Ryan Takeo. This episode, Glenn Farley on the impending Rattlesnake Ridge landslide. I think in some ways, you know, if we were to go over there and cover it every day, it'd be kind of like watching paint dry. Um, but as we dip into it every couple of days to every couple of weeks, I mean, you can see that this, this crack is widening. How he says it's different from previous landslides, like the Oso landslide. We were on the train. Uh, we just got off the train about 10 minutes before it derailed. And Alex Rozier and photojournalist Jim Scott were on the Amtrak train right before it derailed. I'm Ryan Takeo. This is The Sound. We've had some major landslides in the state in the last decade, a massive one not all that far from here in the Nile Valley that blocked the Natchez River. Then it was America's most deadly, the Oso landslide in 2014. This involves moving large blocks, and you can see the crack across this valley. Glenn Farley, where is Rattlesnake Ridge? So it sits right above, well, it kind of crosses Highway 82 uh, in a town called Union Gap, uh, which is south of Yakima. And so it's been there forever, and it's sort of a long geological formation that ID2 cuts cuts through. To drive from here, it's how long? Eh, A little over two hours, two and a half, two and a quarter. So they, they first saw this crack in October... Uh, How did they first notice it? According to the Washington Geological Survey, which is part of the State Department of Natural Resources, and uh, Dave Norman, who's the chief geologist, they were called by the quarry that is there. And the quarry's hired their own consultants. They said, look, we've noticed this crack. Um, And so uh, DNR has been, uh, says that the quarry's been very cooperative. They've hired their own consultants, et cetera. Did it have anything to do with the quarry or not? It's hard to say. Um, but it does sort of, you can see it at the start of the quarry. I don't know if some folks have seen uh, these several um, uh, flyovers with the drones, but that really, really kind of shows it very, very well, and it's fairly low to the ground, so you get a a pretty good sense of it, and it goes a long way. We know that about 75 homeowners have been evacuated. Um, They don't know whether or not their homes are at risk. If you've got unstable soil over your house, you're in a high-risk area. The question is, to, 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 to how high is that risk? What is that going to be like? Is that going to be like Oso, where people really had no chance to get out of the way? They really had no warning that morning. It just Everything just sort of released and came plowing through at 60-plus miles per hour and just blew apart this neighborhood. This seems to be different. This is, this is a different geology. It is much more slow to react. Um, they have moved from saying we th- they thought it would go by the middle of January. Now they're talking about sometime in March, maybe even to April. Um, it's kind of kind of hard to know. It is being heavily uh, monitored uh, with instrumentation and lasers and things like that. The Pacific Northwest Seismic Network, which is at the University of Washington, based on the University of Washington, has put um, portable seismometers on it. And they're listening for anything that suggests movement and the acceleration and movement. It looks like the movement is kind of in talking to DNR late last week has sort of slowed down. There's a line of of uh, old 
shipping containers on, I think it's Thorpe Road at the bottom, designed more to catch rocks than to keep the slide from hitting the highway if, if it goes that direction. That would probably be the, the worst case scenario? That would be the worst case scenario, although DNR seems to think uh, the direction that it's going most of the debris when it does go is probably going to move slowly and is probably all going to move. Most of it will move into the quarry space itself. But there's going to be more material out of the slide, some 4 million cubic yards material, then there is sort of room in the quarry for it to land. So it'll go somewhere. The question is how much of the slope will go and how fast will it go? This could be the third large slide in the state in um, over the last about nine years. We had a really big slide, 40 million cubic yards in the Nile Valley, which is off highway, I think it was 410 at that point. Um, going into the Cascades. Um, that was also associated with a quarry, and this was more loose-type rock. And it happened over a period, the, the initial... Uh, we had just driven through there a week before on another story also about looking for earthquake faults. And this thing was a rotational slide, and it just came down and then just lifted up the highway, lifted up a bunch of homes, um, blocked the river, sent the water through... Um, this rural neighborhoods uh, up and down the valley um, didn't kill anybody. And then we had Oso, the deadliest landslide in U.S. history back on March 22nd of 2014. It killed 43 people. It moved very, very quickly. Different kind of geology, very wet, um, a lot of mud associated with that, but also in an area when you look at the LIDAR work and you talk to the geologist that has been perpetually, it's, it's old glacial till, basically sedimentary type rock and soil left over from the last glaciation. You can see these kind of carved out kind of crescents of previous landslides that go back millennia. So is that the big difference with Rattlesnake Ridge and Oso? Is Oso is more water related and this one is Gravity. It seems to be more gravity with a little water mixed in, how much water it's taking to sort of grease the skids, if you will, or is it just the fact that there's just not enough integrity there on the, um, on the sand and the sedimentary layer to hold it? We had different weather situations. We had a lot of rain in Oso that concentrated over this particular spot. I mean, there was a lot of water in there. Um, there was some logging activity. The jury, there was a settlement in the lawsuits that came out of this, but how much that had to do with it or not, I think is still out because it was a deep-seated landslide. Um, so, the, but they were all, I think it's fair to say they were all different. So when you say we had a landslide in Washington, I think you do have to remember that we've had three different landslides in Washington, counting in the latest one from Rattlesnake Ridge, and we've had other things before. I mean, we have you know, sort of the classic mudslides, you know, the block trains and stuff going up and down Puget Sound, which is this overlayer of uh, soil that sits on a clay layer. And sort of like this in a way, you get these very sloppy, wet slides that come down. And they're all landslides. We tend to call things mudslides. I would not call Oso a mudslide, having stood in the middle of it and looked up. What would you call it? It's a landslide. I mean, it's in the classic case. And it was also very deep-seated. It wasn't just this top layer of, of sand or of, of, of soil. 
it was it was it was very big you know it was very violent and it moved very very fast i'm not sure if this is a silly question or not but you know it's coming instead of kind of having the homeowners the 75 homeowners or anyone else just kind of waiting on edge for what's going to happen whenever it's going to happen why not throw some dynamite over there and just let it come down i don't know that's a good question i don't have an answer for you um there is something to be said for that i suppose uh i think one of the considerations there is unintended consequences um it is they they have a high degree of confidence whatever happens will happen slowly um because of the nature of the rock and everything else um so I think that's why they're going to attempt to let things play out. Obviously, they will close the road with warning. They expect that they will get warning once they see the seismic activity and pick up and they, they notice the uh, the movement. The other thing we haven't talked about, too, and it's kind of related, is Mount St. Helens in 1980 because you had – now, that was a volcano. It was just not a slide where – Previously stable rock and dirt came loose, but that was a great experiment in um, the earlier days of the technologies and the lasers and those kinds of things to monitor this because the north side of the mountain was bulging out. And you had a scientist, David Johnston, who was on Johnston Ridge, now named in his memory because he was not found after the eruption. But the technology that we now have in place versus 1980 is dramatically better. Um, It's probably not fair to say it's perfect, but there's a lot more that they can now see. But even on these other landslides, for example, in the Nile Valley, they put these uh, small seismometers out there called Texans looking for further movement. At that point, that landslide sort of came, seemed to come out of nowhere. It was much more slow-moving unlike Oso, but in 24 hours, that was a lot of dirt and rock to move, and people talked about watching ponderosa pine trees being sort of sucked down into the uh, into um, this this rock flow, and, uh, you know, they had to rebuild the highway, and it was just, it was just months. Oso was less rotational and more just kind of came down, just shot right across the valley. Um, and this thing may just come down just as a pile of rocks. We'll have to see. I think it's fascinating. I think we need to keep monitoring it. I think in some ways, you know, if we were to go over there and cover it every day, it'd be kind of like watching paint dry. Um, but as we dip into it every couple of days to every couple of weeks, I mean, you can see that this this crack is widening. I would say since it's, it's definitely gone from just being a crack to being a wider and wider and wider cracks, you know, it, it is happening. You know, the question is, is there something subterranean that grabs onto that tends to support it because it's sort of slowed down from their original projection, but I think that just shows you right there. The fact they were talking about this going as early as, what, a week ago to maybe now not going until sometime in March, um, we'll have to see, but it's there. You said this fascinates you. 
Um, what is it? Geology always fast. Geology is, if I wasn't doing this, I may be a geologist. I don't know. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's just, it's geology in the earth and movement and, and, and everything. I mean, all the earthquake stuff, the plate tectonic stuff, the volcano stuff, it all. I is. thought you were going to be a pilot. Well, that too. Okay. I stink at math. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Glenn. All right. King Five's Glenn Farley. Last month, an Amtrak train derailed, killing three people on board. King 5 reporter Alex Rozier was on the train, right up until the stop before the derailment. This has been a pretty uh, emotional, traumatic day for some of our uh, colleagues here at King 5. Our Alex Rozier and photojournalist Jim Scott were actually on the train this morning, the one that derailed behind us. They got off in Tacoma only minutes before this derailment happened. I talked to him about that day. It's been unlike anything else I've ever experienced in my life. I mean, it's it's just been uh, tough to comprehend what happened on that day. It, it, you know, that Monday morning, December 18th, was until 7.40 a.m., just another Monday morning, and then it wasn't. It, it was, uh, we were assigned a, a piece about what was supposed to be a great day. I mean, it was a, a day that was celebrating the kind of the culmination of a decade's worth of work for Amtrak, Amtrak and, and WashDOT and and uh, all these track improvements that they spoke of and, and a brand new train station in Tacoma. And, and that day was supposed to be a festive celebratory day. And then in an instant, it changed. You are over at King Street Station at 5 o'clock on TV. Then at 6 o'clock, you're boarding the train some, somewhere around that time. You're boarding the train. Right. We were boarding the train at 6 a.m., and uh, we did our first live shot. The train was supposed to leave at 6. It left a little late. Uh, we do a live shot on the train uh, at, at 6. I'm supposed to get off in Tacoma, but I'm in the cafeteria, Jake and Joyce. I don't know if I'm getting off yet. I'll let you know. We do one at 7 o'clock live, interview a passenger named Rudy uh, as we're approaching Tacoma. You said you're a commuter down to Centralia, so this is a nice option for you. Yes, it certainly is. It gives me an, uh, more uh, time to get my job done in Centralia and continue on. The train's running a little bit late, doesn't get into Tacoma till about... 7.15, stays there for about 10 minutes. Because um, it's a new train station. A new train station, and, and more people were jumping on in Tacoma. We jumped off in Tacoma, and uh, we're, we're doing a shot as the train's pulling away, and we're like, hey, take a look. There it goes, Amtrak 501. As we come back out here, you're looking at that train leaving the Tacoma station yeah, that here. Was, that was about 7.30. My phone rings about 7.40 and the train derailed. Crazy. Why did you get off the train? And was there any possibility that you would have been on the train maybe if it were more on time? Yeah, that's, well, what was crazy was that we were, we were originally planning, our, our initial plan was to start in Tacoma and then get off in Olympia. We were gonna start in Tacoma at the brand new train station, say, hey, look, we're live outside this train station. It's brand new. We're going to jump on the train, get off in the capital city, because the portion uh, where they where they redid a lot of the track was in between Tacoma and Olympia. But then I had an interview pop up later that morning in Seattle, 
And then there was this protest we had heard about, an unrelated protest on an unrelated story. There was a protest in Tacoma that we were going to check out. So we, we decided, we're like, well, let's just ride from Seattle to Tacoma. That decision may have saved our life. I mean, who knows? At what point does it start to do you start to process i mean you're seeing these pictures do you jump into that kind of oh it could have been me i know people are asking you that on phoners lester holt alex rozier is a reporter with king five uh in seattle alex uh, where are you and what can you tell us we were on the train uh we just got off the train about 10 minutes before it derailed when does it actually sink in well that was the that was the thing that was so difficult to process because you know, you see this train is off the tracks. At first, I, I, I'm thinking in my head, okay, when my executive producer called me, she said the train derailed. She wasn't 100% sure, though, that it was Amtrak 501 at that time. So I make call Sound Transit. They say, yes, it's 501. It's over, it, uh, off the overpass on Interstate 5. And I'm like, wow, that is the train we just got off of. And what was so challenging was you have this personal dilemma that you're trying to navigate mentally just you nearly escaped this and then on the other side professionally you have NBC News and Lester Holt calling and they this is a national story all of a sudden it's an international story all of a sudden in minutes so you have this personal and professional thing it's like nothing I've ever experienced before but instantly you know I, I'll make clear, and I, I want to make the focus of the. We were safe. We were fine. There were 80 people on that train who weren't, and uh, that's where my mind went instantly. My mind went to Rudy Wetzel, the the man who I interviewed live on at 7 a.m. on board that train, and I, he, the 81-year-old man from Centralia. That he he was one of those people on board that train that was so excited. He was so happy to be there. He was going to be able to get back to his farm in Centralia earlier. He uh, has a girlfriend who he dates in Seattle, so he was going back to Centralia, and he was so happy about that new early service, and that's where my mind went right away. It was, how's Rudy? How are these people that we talked to? And, and that was what's unbelievable. These people we were just talking to, we're in a train wreck minutes later. A lot of people have asked me, how did you stay on the story? And I stayed on the story largely for those people who weren't as fortunate as I was and, 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 and the people that were in the hospital, the people that and their families that deserve answers about what happened there, how on this first day of the service did this train derail. And I knew that professionally I never was going to walk away from this story. And largely it's because of how this personally impacted me as well, having just been on that train. So let's talk about Rudy. You interviewed him at 7 o'clock in the morning, the, the morning of, of uh, and you knew that he was going to be staying on because he was yep. going down to Centralia. Um, 24 hours later, you interview him live in his hospital bed. He had some sort of, what, what was the incident issue with his back? I've, I've, I've learned this important distinction. He suffered a broken back. Rudy didn't break his back. He suffered a broken back due to the train derailment. But yes, he's an incredible man. He is a farmer in Centralia, 81 years old, incredible family. And uh, we interviewed him live. Yeah, 7 a.m. 
7 a.m. the next morning, 24 hours after first meeting him, were interviewing him in a hospital bed. It's just total shock. I thought initially it was an explosion. How unreal. 7 a.m. Monday morning, we're talking to him about his excitement about this new train. And he says to me on in that interview, he says, I'd rather be riding in the train than sitting on the interstate. Forty minutes after that conversation, Rudy was on the interstate because the train derailed. And 24 hours later, we were talking to him in a hospital bed because of that derailment. I was trying to sleep, and when the crash occurred, and it was totally dark, and I could only see a little bit, I felt that this anything, any minute, this whole thing was going to collapse on me. His spirit was pretty evident that he was still a happy guy. Yeah. He's an unbelievable guy, and that's one of the you know, great joys of this business is that you meet so many people who are just, who come into your lives maybe at kind of tough times. And, and uh, he, he was so amazing in, in those moments to, to have a, his outlook. I mean, all of us, we, we all would process that differently, how, how we would deal with something like that. But he continued to talk about his admiration for trains and, and, and engineers and, and, he, he praised the emergency responders who helped him. Very professional. Everybody was nice and uh, very hardworking. Even those who were driving down the interstate on a normal Monday morning that stepped in to help. Uh, he was so uh, glass half full, I guess, you know, when, yeah. when he was looking at his experience. And, and I'm just so grateful to have met him. And uh, by the way, he's, he's starting to improve. And his family sent me a picture of him uh, this weekend, sitting on the couch and, <laughs> and uh, smiling, so he's getting better. And I know that I, I, I think I found a, a lifelong friend in, in Rudy because he's a special man. Does the fact of you went through what you went through with, with Jim Scott and um, being so close to this story, does that uh, in any way change how you're going to follow this story? You gonna follow this story any more closely? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no doubt. And and and, I mean, there are just so many questions that that remain. How, I, obviously, you know, how, how did this happen? Speed. We're starting to get some answers. The NTSB starting to slowly release. We got a team of journalists here that are going to be dedicated to getting those answers. But there's also the people end. I mean, there's there are so many elements to this story. On the week of the crash, you had the crash, you had Interstate 5 being closed down, and then you had, I should say, the crash and the investigation that was ongoing. You had Interstate 5 being shut down, and then you also had the people who were on board. And I, I think moving forward on my end, my coverage is going to be focused still on these people who who, who are still dealing with this awful hand that they've been dealt in it uh, that you know that I just was learning more about a, a high school aged boy who who's still in the hospital and, and there are several people still in the hospital and um, we need to try to follow up with them see of how we can be of help to them and their families as we continue to pursue answers about how this train derailed. Well, we'll continue to focus on them and on the investigation and just while I have you. I mean, I've known you for uh, almost 10 years now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when I, I saw just the course that your day took 
um, that day, you know, uh, yeah, you instantly think about um, what could have happened. Glad you're okay. And uh, you guys did a, a fantastic job in an unimaginable scenario. So kudos to you and glad you're okay, man. Well, thank you so much. And I want to give additional praise to Jim Scott, our photojournalist. He's somebody that the viewers don't see every day, but you and I both know working in this industry that, you know, we, we don't get on television without people like Jim Scott. He's incredibly talented. And that day he too, um, stepped in and continued, continued his work on a, on a day that was very personally tough for us. But, uh, I think professionally we look back and we'll be proud of our coverage because we were able to hopefully give a voice to, to the people who were so uh, severely impacted that day. Thanks, buddy. You got it. King Five's Alex Rozier. Now here's photojournalist Jim Scott on how the day looked for him. <sighs> Morning of the 18th. All right. Alex Rozier and I were heading out on a train ride. New 6 a.m. train. Jim, what do you think? Smooth ride. Smooth ride. We're almost here. It was just an easy morning. It was a relaxed morning. We were just having fun on a train. I'm supposed to get off in Tacoma, but I'm in the cafeteria, Jake and Joyce. I don't know if I'm getting off yet. I'll let you know. Interviewed one gentleman, Rudy, live on air in the morning. He agreed to it. 81-year-old man, just very fun and just very lively, lively guy, and just, you, know, you couldn't help but smile just talking to him. But uh, everything's fine. I prefer uh, riding the train than sitting on the freeway. Tacoma came along, and we got off the train, and we had to tape one more thing for Alex. Here you're looking at that train. As we were taping, we watched the train leaving the station. And uh, we know the 15 or 18 miles down the tracks, it was going to be derailed. Uh, you're hearing something about a train derailment? Camp? I'm not only hearing a train derailment, I am seeing... And I said, I have to see the picture. I said, show me the picture. And he uh, showed me on his phone, and I could see the train dangling off. It just hit me in the gut like it's, you know, like a sledgehammer. We were on this exact train. We are sitting in traffic right now, um, trying to get to this scene. And the whole time I'm just thinking about what could have happened. You know, if we had stayed on that train to the next stop, because it didn't make it to the next stop. Right around Christmas just breaks my heart. And I do want to have our photojournalist Jim Scott show what we are looking at because it is just a shocking sight here. We spend the morning just doing everything we could, just uh, just keep focused, getting our interviews, getting whatever information we get, doing our jobs. At this point, we're just told there's multiple fatalities. We kept thinking about Rudy. Um, both Alex and I were thinking about Rudy because you know he's just such a nice guy, and we don't know what happened at Car Three. Didn't know what happened to Rudy or the two young girls, or the other gentleman that was sitting in front of Rudy. No idea, we talked with them, no idea what happened to them. So many of the people that we were speaking with all morning long um, are likely on this train. Then we get a call that Alex has been waiting for. We got Rudy's family called out to him and got a message to him that Rudy was okay. He had two broken vertebrae, but Rudy is okay. The next morning, 24 hours after we originally had Rudy on air, we had him on air live again, and this time in a lot different condition. Rudy is sitting right next to me here at a hospital bed in Olympia. Well, I, I decided to take a, a little nap, a short 30-minute nap, and next thing you knew, I was flying all over the, the train. How are you doing uh, as you wake up today in uh, the hospital here in Olympia? They treat me so well, the, me the medication takes away the pain, I'm fine. 
<laughs> Rudy, you have two broken vertebrae. I'm good. <laughs> wow. Hey, more people need to be more like Rudy. I mean, seriously, the guy, his personality is, is just a can-do spirit. It's just amazing. I mean, just amazing to me. From the start of all this, the first one, I didn't get a chance to even go home and hug my wife, hug my kid. I wanted to. I, I couldn't. I couldn't let the people down on that train. I couldn't not tell their story. I couldn't not be there for them because they, they needed their story told. I just have to say, December 18th will stick with my mind because this is one thing where everyone who rode the train was given one of these. And now it's, I say I'm going to hold on to it with my life because I got off the train and lived. The Sound is a production of King 5 Media in Seattle, Washington. Please subscribe or comment on the show. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Ryan Takeo. This is The Sound.